Well, welcome to the Hills, everybody who's live at one of our campuses or joining us online or maybe later on podcast. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. And um, for anybody I haven't got the chance to meet, my name's Taylor. Uh, I serve as one of the teaching ministers here. And I want to begin this message where we ended last week when we started this series, How Jesus Prayed. Last week, we looked at the rhythms of Jesus' own life in prayer, and then we kind of arrived at this place in Luke 11, where we're going to start this morning. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, live at our campuses, will you read these words? Lord, teach us to pray. This is a unique request. It's not so much that they're interested in hearing from Jesus. They've been doing that for a while now. It's that this is the only place in the Gospels where the disciples specifically make a request that Jesus teach them something. Other places, they ask for explanations on what he's already said, or they might have questions for him to answer. But this is the only place where they say, Lord, teach us. And of all the things, it's prayer. Now, I'm about to break one of kind of my unwritten rules as, as, uh, as a speaker and as a preacher. I don't usually, early in a message, have a longer quote, but I read something this week from Eugene Peterson that I want to read to you because I think, for me, it, it shifted my understanding and framework of why they would ask Jesus teach us to pray. Here's what Peterson writes. The disciples have been living with Jesus for something like three years, watching what he does and listening to what he says. Somehow, they have come to the realization that following him does not mean imitating what he does or repeating what he says. It means cultivating a relation with God the way they observe Jesus doing it. They want to work out of the God-personal, God-relational, God-love-fueled center the way they have seen Jesus doing it. He concludes, they want to do well what Jesus does best. Teach us to pray. I hope that as you process that, those words and that idea that you can, you can begin to understand that what the disciples were asking of Jesus was not merely for, for a form of prayer. They weren't merely asking to have a, a strategy or approach. It's that they were asking for insights for how to connect with God and have a daily relationship with him. This is where we started last week, that prayer should not only set the pace of our lives as it did for Jesus, but it should become the place of encounter. Not only where we come with requests, but also where we commune with God and hear what he has to say to us. So in response to this, Jesus, Jesus uh, has something to teach them in the verses that follow. And in verses 2 to 13, we're going to look at what Jesus says, and essentially he gives a three-part answer. Broadly speaking, he starts with what to pray, then he talks about how to pray, and then he talks about why we should pray. 
So let's, let's follow his words. Beginning in verse two, as he talks about what to pray. He said to them, when you pray, say, and live at all of our campuses, I'd invite you, would you read and pray these words with me? Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Now, some of you uh, are, are, are going, ah, that's a shorter version of the Lord's Prayer than I've heard before. And that's because uh, we, a lot of us have memorized and know the Matthew version. That's kind of the version that's most popular and most known. Luke gives us a shorter version. But here, it's still this model prayer of basically what to pray. Jesus isn't giving this model because these are the only words we should ever pray, although these are great words to memorize. It's giving us an example of the type of requests or things that we should feel confident saying in God's presence. But Jesus doesn't stop there. After teaching a simple model of what to pray, he goes into a story to help us understand how to pray. And for as famous as the Lord's Prayer is, this story is one of the lesser known of all of Jesus' teaching. Luke 11, starting in verse 5. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Okay, so a little recap in this story. Jesus puts all of us as listeners into a situation. So there's you, there's your neighbor and his family, and there is your friend who showed up late at night from a long journey who you were not expecting. And so now you've kind of got options because basically you've got nothing to provide for your friend who showed up past midnight. And this is a day and age when there's no 24-hour water burger. burger. There's no no options. There's there's not not a hotel you're going to send them to. And so now you, you are left with a choice. You can be a bad host or you can be a bad neighbor. And so you, you get up and you decide you're going to go knock on the door at midnight. Why would you do this? Well, historical context. In Jesus' day and age, hospitality was a deeply ingrained social and religious value. There were teachings in the Old Testament for a Jewish society about how you treat the stranger and the traveler and welcoming someone to provide for them. There, there was and still is today a social value for hospitality that's rooted in a communal mindset, meaning when somebody shows up at your house, you are now responsible for their needs. It's your expectation. It's the expectation that you would care for them and shelter them and, and provide for them. And if you can't do it, then it is your responsibility to, with the community, provide for the needs of this person who is a guest. And so, you knock on the door after midnight. Now, the friend immediately brings up his children. It was common in that day to, uh, many, many people lived in one-room houses. And so, where did everyone sleep? 
That's right, in that one room. So you are on, you're on a mat, and your kids maybe are on, 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 on the mat or maybe on a different, different mat on the floor, but you're all there in one room, and anybody who has ever helped put down little ones, I don't care if you're a bigger sibling or an aunt or uncle, parent, grandparent, you know some of that cycle of the up, down, up, down, of trying to put down little kids. And you go through the round of one more story, one more song. Hey, I had one more question. You finally get them down, and then they come out of their room, and they need a drink of water. They're hungry for a snack. They had an existential question about death that popped into their mind while they were laying there in the dark. Like, all these different things that happen. Finally, you get them asleep, and this friend is like, you need to be quiet. My kids are sleeping. Because imagine the... Knocking on that door, and the friend wakes up and looks around the room, and little eyes start to pop open. You know that, that, that feeling of like, no. So this is how that friend feels. I am not getting up for the bread. But Jesus says, look, eventually, this, this neighbor who in daytime is a friend and at nighttime is a grumpy person, they might not get up because they call you a friend. But the NIV says, because of your shameless audacity. What is Jesus' point here with this story? Well, his point broadly, which he'll bring up a couple times that we'll see today, is don't give up praying. How, how are we supposed to pray? Well, he gives us what to pray, how. We should pray with shameless audacity. Don't give up praying. Pray with a holy boldness. Well, why? Why should we do this? Jesus, in his third part of the answer, goes from what to how to why. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So in this explanation, Jesus helps us understand that there is a wrong way to interpret this parable. See, this isn't like the, the, the story of the prodigal son where we're going to find God in the story. Uh, in, in fact, live at our campuses, you can just repeat after me for, for just a second so that we have a clear understanding. You can just repeat after me. God is not, God is not my grumpy neighbor. All right, I just want to make sure we're all clear on that, okay? God's not a grumpy neighbor. You're not knocking on heaven's door and he's going, leave me alone. Like, that's not God. You're not going to badger God into doing something. The point, Jesus says, is that, we, is, is that he is a loving father. So not just don't give up praying, but don't give up praying because God loves to give good gifts. Don't give up praying because the one you're praying to is not a grumpy, unwilling neighbor. The one you're praying to is more than a friend. The one you're praying to is your father who loves you, who knows how to give good gifts. And so if that's true, then in the the words of Hebrews 4, then we can come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. 
that we're invited by Jesus, the how of how we should pray is with a shameless audacity, with an audacity that says, I, on my own, I might not be worthy, but I'm going to knock. And by the way, in that story, that, that you in the story as Jesus locates us as the one who's trying to help our friend who showed up at our house, to walk over to that neighbor's door, you could be nervous about knocking, you could feel a little bit awkward and apologetic about knocking. You could be cringing, but no matter how you feel in that story, as soon as your fist hits the door, you have done the shamelessly audacious thing. <laughs> Which means when you pray, you might feel intimidated. You might come humbly. You might feel nervous. You might feel like, oh man, God, I don't even know if this is the way I'm supposed to pray. But as soon as you talk to him, you have done the shamelessly audacious thing to believe that the creator of the universe would hear from you. And here, Jesus says, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Now, we might hear that, and while in one way it's inspiring to help us know we have a Father in heaven who loves us and wants to give good gifts, we can also wrestle with, what about all the times when I have been asking, but I haven't been given anything, when I have been seeking and I haven't found, when I have been knocking and that door has not opened? Well, a few chapters later, go ahead, turn over to Luke 18, Jesus tells another story about resilient prayer. While you're turning there, I want you to know that there's, there's, there's a piece of what we're getting at that we're gonna dive into more next week. And that is the reality of what is often referred to as unanswered prayer. Of times when, when we just feel like we're not hearing back from God or we're not seeing from God what we've been praying for. And Jesus knows that that's going to happen in our experience in part because of what he, what, what, uh, what, why he tells this story. Luke says in 18.1, one day Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. Other translations will put it so that they should keep on praying and not lose heart. And I recognize that there are many of us who know what it feels like to have prayed a prayer so many times that we've not only have a broken heart, we've lost heart to keep praying. And I hope that as you hear this story, you're hearing words from a, from a rabbi, from a savior who knows your heart, who loves you, and who knows that for many of us, we will get to the place where what we want to do when it comes to prayer is just give up. So he tells this story. There was a judge in a certain city, he said, who neither feared God nor cared about people. Gem of a guy. A widow of that city came to him repeatedly saying, give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. The judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people, but this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she is wearing me out with her constant requests. Now, Jesus explains. Then the Lord said, learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. 
So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. Now, Jesus tells this story that we should always pray and not give up. And he uses, now, in, in, in Luke 11, we had two neighbors who were friends, a very personal situation. Now we have a story that's depersonalized. We have a nameless judge and a faceless widow. And, and now we've got people who are also separated in society. We have, we have a widow who would represent the most vulnerable or powerless in society. Especially in Jesus' day, if, if, you were, if you were a widow well, and you needed someone to plead your case, you would have gone to a relative. You would have gone to an influential friend, somebody to advocate on your behalf who has a higher social standing. But this widow has no one to advocate for her. So she goes for herself. Meanwhile, we have a judge who doesn't care about God and doesn't care about people, an unjust judge. And yet, even though the judge has all the power and seems to be the type of person who says, I don't care what anybody else thinks, we have a widow who has a voice. And she uses that voice over and over, so much so that in, our, in the New Living Translation, it's wearing me out with her request. That's what the judge says. But the original Greek language, the literal translation is tied to the idea of being given a black eye. Now, in our, in our kind of the way that we might talk, this is the idea of like, man, this woman badgering me, this is a beatdown right now. I mean, everywhere I go, she's there. Every time I turn around, she's got something to say, and I'm, I'm getting beat down by her request. This is the language that Jesus is conjuring up, the judge feeling like, I'm just beat down. And some of you know what it's like to be beat down by someone requesting something of you. I was thinking of like, okay, in a, in a, in a humorous way, in modern day terms, uh, who's powerless but can beat somebody down with their request? And I thought, it's a kid who wants their own phone. That's what it is. This kid has no money. This kid has no power in the situation. And the parent is in control. The parent holds all the power. But that kid has a voice. Every time some friend gets a phone, I saw at, at school, my buddy Johnny, he got a phone. It's my turn to get a phone. You know, oh, she got one for her birthday. I want one for my birthday. And you just pester and pester and pester and you beat them down. There's kids right now taking notes. Okay, persistent <laughs> prayer. This is how I get a phone. No, no, it's not. Hopefully not. Maybe so. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> the point in Jesus's story is this idea of a resilience and a persistence that eventually prevails. Don't give up praying because God alone can set the world right. Oh, in this story, we have, we have a a, a, a woman who knows there's only one person in this town who can give me justice. And so she keeps coming to that same person. Now, once again, Jesus is creating a contrast. God is a righteous judge who loves people, not an unjust judge who doesn't care about anybody. So how much more, Jesus says, should we be trusting that God hears those who cry out day and night. This is language that we see other places in the Bible. 
that there are people who cry out to God over and over and over again, believing that he is hearing their prayers and that they are ushering in his will and his work and his righteous justice on the earth. The prophet Isaiah uses this kind of language in Isaiah 62. Oh, Jerusalem, I've posted watchmen on your walls. They will pray day and night continually. Take no rest, all who pray to the Lord. Give the Lord no rest until he completes his work. This is a kind of trust that says, God, until it's done, I'm not done asking. God, until it is finished, I'm not finished praying. And so in trust, I'm coming back to you because you're the only one who can, who can bring salvation into this, this situation. You're the only one who can bring healing into this wound. You're the only one who can bring justice into this unjust situation. You alone, God, can set the world right. So I'm coming back to you again and again and again. This is the message of Jesus. Don't give up praying. Keep asking. Give the Lord no rest. And yet to that, there is a tension and a question I want to ask. If God is a righteous judge and a loving father who knows what we need before we ask, why do we have to keep asking? Why do we have to always pray and not give up, especially repeated prayers that we have already prayed many times before? I remember, it's been a couple of years ago, having a conversation with a missionary that we support as a church. And I can't tell you their name or exactly what country they're in, but they serve in North Africa. They serve in a, a place where it is illegal to share your faith. Our senior teaching ministers visiting church plants around the country this month, and this missionary I was talking to, they could never plant a church like that where they serve. They have to take a different approach. And for this particular missionary and the team he works with, prayer is a huge part of their strategy, of their uh, of, of their approach to doing ministry in this environment that, man, there's a lot of obstacles. There's a lot of pushback and potential persecution. There's a danger in what they're doing. And so a big part of their ministry has been prayer, intercessory prayer for the city they live in, walking and praying. And he was telling me different answers to prayer that they had seen, but how much more they were still praying for and so I, I was inspired and fascinated. I'm asking all kinds of questions about prayer as he and I had several conversations during his furlough. And at one particular meal, I'm getting so teacher-minded. So, well, what about this verse? What about this verse? And how does it all add up? And, it, and, and it, it's ironic because I really hated math in school, but I was treating prayer like it could be a, an, an equation I could figure out to rationalize everything out and kind of understand logically. And finally... My, my friend said, Taylor, you're never going to figure prayer out. It doesn't add up. And it was an important and humbling moment for me because I had to realize something. Prayer doesn't math. We're, we're not going to solve the equation of prayer. Prayer invites us into a mystery. 
God knows everything, but he asks us to tell him things in prayer. God can do anything he wants, but he tells us to come back to him and ask him to do it. God doesn't need to be asked, but he tells us prayer is essential. In parts of the Bible, he tells us that when we pray, things happen. Even in these stories we've looked at from Jesus today, God is not a grumpy neighbor, but we should knock on the door with shameless audacity. There are people crying out day and night who God has already heard their prayers, and they're still waiting. And yet, Jesus says, justice will swiftly come. It does not math. But Jesus, Jesus finishes this story in Luke 18 with a question. He says, but when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on the earth who have faith? Jesus makes a connection between faith and prayer. That there is a mystery we're invited into in the act of prayer and communion with God. And there's a mystery in asking God for things again and again. But that prayer is an act of faith. It is an act of trust. So I want to follow, since Jesus connected faith and prayer, I want to follow that connection to the moment when Jesus was preparing to face his darkest hour. In the Garden of Gethsemane, hours before he'll be betrayed and eventually taken to the cross, Luke 22 says that on reaching the place, Jesus said to his disciples, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. First, Jesus says it to his disciples. Pray so you won't fall into temptation. Then Jesus withdraws with his three closest followers, Peter, James, and John. When he withdraws, he prays for himself and lives into what he just told them. And what we see here is don't give up praying because your faith is formed by your prayers. This, I really believe, is at the heart of what happens in prayer. There is a communion with God, a connection with God. But it happens as we come back again and again, trusting him, even in the midst of doubts or fears. I look at what Jesus did. In one breath, he's able to voice his greatest fear, his greatest request that's tied to his own personal safety. Father, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me. And in the same breath, he's willing to surrender his desires to the will of God. Yet not my will, but yours be done. I asked some friends this week, 
Some who I know have had long seasons of interceding for people in their lives, for praying for specific things, specific healings, or, 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 or ways that they're asking God to intervene in their life that they haven't seen resolved yet. And when I asked a version of, of this question, man, if, if God knows what we need, why do you have to keep praying? I was asking the question with a mindset of results, but every single friend that I asked answered not from the basis of results, but in the crucible of relationship. They talked about what God did in that place. Prayer may not always math, but it does mature us. It impacts us. It shapes us. They, they talked about how it was, it was a place where their motivations for praying were laid bare before the Lord, and their motivations were refined. They, they talked about when coming and kind of asking these things repeatedly of God was refining things in their heart. It, it, was, it was becoming a place in prayer where they learned to express their desires and surrender them and trust God for something better, even when they didn't understand what that better might be. It was a place where they weren't necessarily thinking they were convincing God, but they were being conformed to God's will and to God's way. When Jesus returns from this, this prayer, a couple times, he, he keeps coming back to the disciples to tell them again, keep praying. And in Matthew's account, Matthew 26, he says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus draws a direct connection between pressing in to prayer and being able to walk in faithfulness. A life full of prayer has the strength to walk in faithful trust. But a prayerless life will result in a faltering faith. And that's what we see in Gethsemane. The disciples don't pray. Jesus prays. And to explain the results, I want to use a powerful quote that I heard from Haddon Robinson this week. He asks, where was it that Jesus sweat great, great drops of blood? Not in Pilate's hall, nor on his way to Golgotha. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane. There he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Had I been there and witnessed that struggle, I would have worried about the future. If he's so broken up when all he is doing is praying, I might have said, what will he do when he faces a real crisis? Why can't he approach this ordeal with the calm confidence of his three sleeping friends? Yet when the test came, Jesus walked to the cross with courage, and his three friends fell apart and fell away. Man, for each one of us, in the place of temptation, in the place of struggle, in the place of fear or doubt or anguish, prayer becomes the place where God strengthens us to trust him through the ordeal. Prayer becomes the place where God forms us so that no matter what happens, I still have faith, God, that you're with me or that you'll see me through. And Jesus was praying to have the courage to go die for the sins of the world, 
for your sins, for my sins. His body broken, his blood poured out. After being buried, he's raised to new life. He has all power and authority. He sends out his disciples into the world, and as he blesses them, he ascends to heaven, which might seem like, well, now it's on us. But Jesus gave his disciples, promised the gift, the gift of his presence, his Holy Spirit, who Romans 8 says intercedes for us when we don't have words to pray. And Jesus left with a promise that he would return. And so we wait for the Son of Man's return to set all things right. But until then, did you know that Jesus is still doing something for you? Jesus has never given up praying for you. Scripture says in Hebrews 7 that therefore Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. In the times when you and I struggle to persist in prayer, in the times when we doubt or when we want to give up, there is a Savior who has never stopped praying for you. There's a Savior who is persisting in prayer, advocating on your behalf and on my behalf so that we might know even in the times when we struggle to keep praying, Jesus is praying. Jesus is praying and advocating. And that means when we're praying, no matter how many times we've prayed that prayer, we are never praying alone. So what I want to do right now, I want to ask you, what is the thing you need to ask God for with shameless audacity? What is the prayer that you have prayed many times and lost heart and given up praying that you need to pick back up in faith? What is the thing that only God can do that you need to ask him to do? So I want to invite you at all our campuses, will you bow your heads right now? Between you and the Lord, I just want to invite you to lift that prayer up to him. For some of you, it may be a prayer that you've never prayed before, something you've always been scared to ask for. For others of you, it's a prayer you've prayed many times, and it may even hurt to pray it again. God, I thank you that you've heard all these prayers. And I thank you, Jesus, that you are interceding for us who are in you right now. I pray that those who do not call Jesus Lord would hear today an invitation that there is a loving Father who loves them so much he came to earth and died for them, rose again, is going to set all things right and, and invites them into his family. And for those who are already followers of Jesus, I pray that we would find strength and courage to keep asking, to keep trusting, because Jesus, our high priest, is still praying for us and giving us strength to endure through his Holy Spirit. Pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.